Listen now to the word of God. And after some days, Paul and Barnabas, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take him with them, uh, take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So reads the Word of God. Today's text could really yield some profound insights that are uniquely relevant to us here today, as I've already mentioned just a moment ago. Uniquely relevant to us in our own day. So let's move right into this text. We don't want to delay long here, but but let's take just a moment as we begin to get our bearings here a little bit chronologically. It's helpful as we're moving through Acts, we can have the impression that we're still back sometime near the the days of of Pentecost where the Spirit was first poured out on the church. And from time to time, we have given chronological pointers to let you know how far removed we are and so forth. Today, I've put in your bulletin, or requested to have put in your bulletin, a list of events and dates that we call a possible chronology of Paul's life from conversion to the Jerusalem Council, from the time that Paul came to saving faith on the Damascus Road right up to our passage today, we've put together some events that have happened in his life so we can see the progression and appreciate a little bit more uh, clearly and, uh, and directly what it is that is going on here. This is a briefer passage that links so tightly with the Jerusalem Council today, but also with biographical information from Paul included that is included in his letter to the Galatians. It's linked well to that as well. And the Galatian region is the region that he just left at the end of the first journey, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and the one that he's going to return to this morning at the end of our text. So this Galatian region plays significantly in this text of Scripture, and all of that together, I just believe it could be helpful to take a few minutes to review a possible order of the events in his ministry life so far. And you can see that on the handout. You can also, uh, if you're at home, but also I think in here, yes, see it on the screen. AD 33 is roughly the date where the conversion of 
Saul happened on the Damascus road. And there Saul continued on to Damascus where his sight was restored and he began preaching there immediately after coming to faith in Christ. And then he went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. We read about that in Galatians chapter 1. And perhaps having erased the ire of Eretus there in that region, um, he had to escape at night, if you remember that, from back in Acts 9. We can also get a bit of detail there from 2 Corinthians 11. All right? The next event here, AD 36, his first visit to Jerusalem after his conversion. That's when he met Peter and James and Barnabas, we see in Galatians 1 and again in Acts 9. This was three years after his conversion. And he stayed 15 days there, we learn in Galatians 1. When you start putting these passages together, there is so much help in appreciating the progression of Paul's life. Stayed 18 days on that trip to Jerusalem, that first trip that came three years after his conversion. He preached boldly again there, Acts 9, then went down into Caesarea and into Tarsus, we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 30. AD 45, some Nine or ten years later, called to Antioch by Barnabas, recorded in Acts chapter 11, verses 22 to 26. Called to Antioch, Barnabas went down to Tarsus and found Paul. He'd been down there a long time back in his hometown. And he came to Antioch because of what the Lord was doing in that church. Then in AD 46, about a year later, there's a second visit to Jerusalem that's recorded in Acts 11 and also described in some detail in the first 10 verses of Galatians 2. This is the visit where uh, Paul went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus to deliver the famine relief offering. It was 14 years now after his conversion, according to Galatians 2.1. And sometime probably just prior to that trip is when he confronted Peter for his inconsistency, initially having eaten with Gentiles, and then some Jews came into town and he withdrew from eating. That's addressed in Galatians 2, 11 to 14. It probably happened just before this trip. Um, and it happened when some prophets came down to Antioch from Jerusalem. Again, that's recorded in Acts 11. Next in the chronology came uh, AD 46 to 48, that's the first missionary journey with Barnabas, and it started with John Mark, but the one from which John Mark went back home, where he established the churches in southern Galatia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. right? This is when that happened. Acts 13 and 14 are the events of the first journey. The next thing we see is A.D. 48. That's probably about when Paul wrote his letter that we call Galatians, a letter to these Galatian churches so the passage there we've listed is Galatians 1 through 6, addressing the very issue that was going to be addressed at the Jerusalem council. So shortly after sending this letter, he probably went up to Jerusalem uh, with Barnabas for this Jerusalem council. And that then in AD 49 was his third visit to Jerusalem. It was for the council. That's described in the first 21 verses of Acts 15. And then we read in our final verse from last week's text that that Paul and Barnabas stayed there in Antioch preaching and teaching for a while. After they returned from Jerusalem, reported the, the findings of the council, they stayed there preaching and teaching, Acts 15.35. And then in 50 or 52, the second missionary journey, which we're looking at today, just beginning, the second missionary journey with Silas, where he delivered the verdict of the council again to these very Galatian churches. 
So now they've received a letter from Paul, and as he travels on the inland route back into their region, now with Silas, he's going to talk to other churches that either may not have heard that letter or may have some questions about it. He's going to address that issue with them. The rough chronology of Paul's life. Do you find that kind of thing helpful? Really do. Don't you to put this together and to see what it is that uh, Paul was doing and how, how long this time is extending of his early ministry. With that, then, let's turn our attention to the text. This passage, really brief as it is, comes in two parts, but we'll add a third just for some reflection and application this morning because it is uniquely important to us, all right? So you can see the, uh, the outline that we have there. First of all, the disagreement and the departures uh, as we finish chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. Secondly, the disciple and the delivery Uh, The first five verses of chapter 16, and then a few moments for the deductions and the direction uh, that we can take and hear in these texts. So let's move through the text together. Keep it open in front of you, and we'll just talk through it a bit together. So following that stent of preaching and teaching in Antioch that we just mentioned, Acts 15.35, Paul suggested to Barnabas that they go back and visit the churches that they planted. That's how our text opens here in verse 36. A second missionary journey. Now it's interesting here in this text that there's no mention of the leading of the Spirit here. It's not the Spirit prompted them to go. It's not that the church gathered again and identified them to go. This just appears to be Paul floating the idea with Barnabas. Let's go back and visit these churches and Barnabas agreeing with them. Not suggesting the Lord wasn't leading here, but it is interesting that it's not mentioned. Remember as well, though, that prayer wasn't mentioned during the verdict of the Jerusalem council, but I am confident it was present. But then the trials here started to show up much like they had throughout the first journey. They showed up right from the start. One of them came right away. After Paul and Barnabas had decided to go on this second journey, this trial came up right away even before they left town. And it's famous among us. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along, his cousin, as we learned in previous texts, who had been with them at the beginning, an aid to these two. Verse 37, but Paul thought it would be best not to take Mark since Mark had abandoned them the last time they left. Stayed with them only through the early part of the trip and then went back to Jerusalem, verse 38. But uh, the text uh, where we read about that is back in chapter 13. And Luke tells us here that they had such a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. That's how he puts it there in verse 39. They separated from each other. Barnabas and Mark sailed away to Cyprus the very way that Paul and Barnabas had gone last time. Cyprus, Barnabas' hometown, if you remember, back to Acts chapter 4. His home area, I should say. Cyprus is an island, not a town. So back to Barnabas' home area where they might also see some believers that Mark had met on his first journey because he did travel across Cyprus with them during that first journey before he went back to Jerusalem. So that's the route that Barnabas and Mark took. But Paul, with his new lead partner Silas, one of those guys that had come down with the message from the Jerusalem church to Antioch to just underscore the importance of the decision of the council in the letter that they had written to that church. Silas, one of those guys, identified as a prophet by Luke. Paul and Silas were commended by the brothers of the Lord to the grace of the Lord, verse 40, 
much like they had been before back in church, chapter 13 before they took off. And then they took the land route through Syria and Cilicia, Luke records, back toward Galatia right from the start, strengthening the, church, strengthening the churches all along the way, as verse 41 says. Sort of a subtotal bottom line type statement in Luke's recording of Acts. Those are the kinds of things he says to tie off a section. The next section continues in there and then has another one of those statements very quickly in Acts 16.5. But we can see here that, that Luke is drawing our attention to this segment as something significant and worthy of a summary statement. They went all along the way strengthening the churches. We have to pause for a minute here before we move on to the rest of the text that we have for this morning, though, and say, what about this sharp disagreement? What are we supposed to make of that? These longtime friends headed off in different directions, leaving a conflict behind unresolved. This then is the last time, do you realize this is the last time Barnabas is mentioned in the book of Acts? I don't hear anything more about him, this prominent figure after this. Acts 15.39, that's it. Barnabas is done. What are we supposed to make of that? Is that okay? Luke doesn't help us here a lot. Is it any sort of a model for us to follow? Something about this? What are we supposed to do with it? Well, my friends, we're going to come back to that question a little closer to the end this morning, but it's important to ask it while we're moving through this text. But for now, let's just note a couple of things. Although the text doesn't record when it happens, this dispute was apparently resolved. The one time that Barnabas is mentioned again in the rest of the New Testament, chronologically speaking, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's mentioned there in passing, but a positive reference about Barnabas some three to five years after this. Mark, though, was actually in Rome with Paul. Paul records that. He wrote letters to the Colossian church and to Philemon there in Rome, and he extended greetings from Mark in both of those letters. Colossians 4, 10, Philemon 24. And even beyond that, in his final letter, when he appears to have been nearing the end of his life, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 saying, get Mark and bring him with you. Paul's in prison, suffering. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in ministry. Isn't that a sweet statement? This is a turnaround, folks, and, and what an encouragement it is. So even though we're going to address this question a little bit later, we need, to, we need to factor that in as we understand where this whole situation went as time unfolded. What a reminder here in Paul's statement about Mark that failures can be reversed by the grace of God. Relationships, spiritual productivity, even usefulness can be restored after a pretty embarrassing, pretty significant failure. A failure that landed Mark in the place of experiencing the disapproval of the Apostle Paul. But over time, by the grace of God in his life, and probably in Paul's as well, 
Mark is useful to him when it's over. My friends, never believe that you are in a place where God can't reach you by his grace. And make changes and put behind you that which has stood in your way. And perhaps believe you've been disqualified as a result of it. The day after my brother-in-law Steve passed away Tuesday, almost two weeks ago now, Gene's mother's brother passed away, late 80s, trusted Christ as Savior just days, perhaps hours before he died. Gene's mom had witnessed to her brother many times over the years, and he was virtually hostile to the gospel. But as his daughter was talking to him with death nearing, she heard for the first time what had been standing in the way. He was a soldier in Korea. He'd killed people. He was confident the grace of God couldn't reach him. But he trusted Christ and entered heaven by the grace of God and a promise fulfilled in the gospel. It's never too late. You have not strayed too far. The grace of God can reach you when you turn to him in repentance and faith. Back to Acts 15. The disciple and the delivery, verses, chapter 16 now, verses 1 through 5. We transition. Paul and Silas are now in the Galatian area. They reached Lystra, verse 1, which is in Galatia. They meet Timothy, a highly regarded follower of Christ, verse 2, who, who may well have been a convert from Paul's first journey. Timothy's mother, and we learn in 2 Timothy 1, also his grandmother, were believing Jews. But his father was a Greek, the text records here, verse 1, apparently an unbeliever by the way he's referred to here, and quite possibly deceased based on the verb tense there in verse 3 that I won't take a moment to go into here. But most who read this believe that Timothy's father had passed away. Well, it's the fact that he had an unbelieving Greek father was likely the reason why Timothy wasn't circumcised because the Jews count Jewishness through the mother's line. So the fact that Timothy's mother, her name is Eunice, we know from 2 Timothy, his grandmother was Lois. Timothy probably wasn't circumcised because of his father, but the Jews would have thought that he was a Jew because he was born to a Jewish mom. Perhaps Eunice just wasn't following Jewish customs, both because she was a Christian, but also because she was living here in Lystra, where we're pretty sure there was no synagogue. We made that point as Paul was moving through Lystra last time, and he didn't go to the synagogue first. The first thing he did in Lystra was heal a lame man. There's no mention of a synagogue there. So perhaps because of that, Timothy's mother had left Jewish practices behind. Even so, Paul had firsthand experience with the zeal of the Jews in this Galatian region. Remember, this is the very city where he was stoned and dragged outside the city and left for dead because the Jews were so opposed to his message. This is the place where the Jews from Antioch and from Iconium traveled to Lystra and then to Derbe opposing Paul. They took their opposition on the road. 
Paul was well acquainted with the zeal of the Jews here in this Galatian region. So we read in verse 3, he had Timothy circumcised before he left. That sign of old covenant Israel that the Jerusalem council had just said was unnecessary for salvation. So how does this square with the decision of the Jerusalem council? Remember, they concluded that nothing was required of Gentiles when they trust Christ Nothing more than that they lay aside the practices of their idolatry, as we read both in the council's verdict and then in the letter that explains it. We saw that in the text last week. You didn't have to become Jewish. You didn't have to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses to become a Christian if you were a Gentile. So what do we do with that? How do we handle that? That feels like a point of tension, doesn't it? But we have to keep in mind here that that decision was actually addressing the place of circumcision in conversion. Is it a requirement for Gentiles? Here, Paul is addressing the place of honoring the law of Moses when one is ministering among the Jews. He wanted to take Timothy along with him, quite possibly to fill the role that John Mark had filled on their first journey or was supposed to fill. So Timothy was going to be ministering with them among the Jews. This is a very different matter. If, Timothy, or if Paul had used Timothy prominently in the ministry in this region without having him observe Jewish custom, it would have seemed like Paul was urging Jews away from honoring the law. That's a different question. Now it's not a question of what does it take to be saved. These are Jews to whom the law is the word of God, and even as they embrace Christ, they don't forsake their culture to do so. Actually, their cultural understanding of the Old Testament law and prophets is cleansed in Christ, comes alive in Christ. Jesus gives an example of this as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount and just unfolds before their eyes what all of these standards in the law were supposed to look like how they were meant to be understood and interpreted and obeyed. We know that Paul had already written by this time that circumcision counts for nothing. Circumcision counts for nothing. That's a quote from Galatians 5. And in similar language, Galatians 6, that letter that he's already written that we just saw on the chronology came before all of this. So we know that Paul's already written that with regard to salvation. But that's a wholly different matter now than urging or believing Jews not to honor the law. He's not going to do that. Here, Paul is modeling what he wrote later to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He wrote to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, I can live like I'm under the law. I can imitate the law. I can honor the law. We're doing that in some ways in our day. That I might win those under the law. Indeed, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Classic Paul from 1 Corinthians 9. And exactly what he's doing here with Timothy. 
So that's the one thing we know, that he's already put circumcision in its proper place and told us, he will tell us, later on in this letter to the Corinthians, how it is that we act on these things. But here we also know that later still, Luke records it in Acts 21, when Paul is back in Jerusalem, he would be accused of doing just what it could look like he's doing here if he doesn't circumcise Timothy, namely urging Jews away from their Jewishness when they trust in Christ. So this passage becomes a very important one to prove that Paul never did that. Paul never did that. He had Timothy circumcised because of the place where they were going to be ministering. So from here, Paul and Silas and Timothy began traveling west so we see in chapter 16, verse 6, the first passage, the first verse of next week's passage, they were encouraging the churches with the good news of the decisions reached at the Jerusalem Council, verse 4 right here. And then, as Luke often concludes a section, and we alluded to it just a few moments ago, there in verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Daily. Isn't that amazing? They're still increasing in numbers daily. We're now in AD 50 or, or 52, nearly 20 years after Pentecost and the start of the church. And Luke is still recording daily additions to the church. God is doing amazing things through this first century church. Well, that's our text this morning. Third, the deductions in the direction. Let's talk a little bit about this because there are some important things to draw out of this and learn. We are by no means going to attempt to be comprehensive here. But having walked through this text and being in such similar days, we want to take just a few moments to draw from this text things that could be helpful for us right here and now. So this isn't necessarily saying these are the lessons that are in the text. But as this text speaks to us, and we see what's going on here. These are some things we could learn from and hold on to from this text. First, let's answer our lingering question that we asked several minutes ago now. What are we supposed to do with this sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, obviously, we're not given license in this passage to, to have sharp disagreements with one another, all right? That's, that's not the takeaway here. Have sharp disagreements. Convictions. Let's... let's, let's Stand there and act on that. But there are four good lessons we can draw from it. And these aren't concluding lessons. Just, just This is part of a thought. Four quick lessons we can learn from this sharp disagreement. Number one, conflicts happen in this fallen world. It's a deep insight, isn't it? But I'll tell you, folks, I can guarantee you, you wouldn't go, have to go very far down the row before you find someone who is very grateful to hear that in church this morning. Conflicts happen in this fallen world. We're flawed creatures. We have imperfect knowledge. We have imperfect self-control. So were the apostles. They were just like us in this. Conflicts are unavoidable with sinful people in a sinful world. Even sadly in matters where there's no absolute right or wrong to defend, like here with John Mark, sharp disagreements are still possible. Conflicts happen in this fallen world. We're vulnerable. But 
Lesson number two, conflicts must be addressed. They happen, but they must be addressed. And Paul and Barnabas did so here. They addressed the conflict here. But before we say anything more about that, sometimes full resolution, full resolution just isn't possible in some of the conflicts we face for any number of different reasons. That's why Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That is a great word of instruction with regard to peace in conflicted situations. If possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We just need to make sure then that we are not the ones who are wrongfully extending the conflict. There are two errors, really, that we need to avoid here. Just categorize. Let me give them to you quickly. First, we can't treat disputable matters as though they're essentials. We try to identify what was at the heart of the sharp disagreement of Paul and Barnabas. That's it. Sharp disagreement on a non-essential. And I'm not saying Paul and Barnabas misidentified this circumstance. We don't have enough to discern that. But we do know that whether John Mark went with them or not is not an absolute truth. It's not equal to justification by faith. It's not on par with the Trinity. So, lesson number one from Romans 12, 18 is we just can't treat disputable matters as though they're essentials. That's not going to keep us from every conflict, but it's going to keep us from a good number of them. Second, we can't soften essentials just to avoid or end a conflict. We can't lay aside the doctrine of the Trinity just to have a little better footing evangelistically with Muslim friends, for instance. Can't do that. It's an essential truth. We can't grant ex hypothesi the lack of the deity of the eternal Son of God just to talk a little more meaningfully with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. We just can't do that. Those are essentials. We can't soften on essentials just to avoid or end a conflict. Paul modeled this, I would say, when he had Timothy circumcised. Timothy's circumcision isn't on the same level as the Trinity and the deity of Christ. But this was an essentially important, practical decision when Paul made it with Timothy. He had the courage to do it. We're not being selfish or stubborn when we humbly but firmly defend, stand on the essentials even if it causes conflict. It's part of the reasons why conflict can't be avoided in an imperfect world with imperfect knowledge. So, conflicts happen, but conflicts must be addressed. Third, conflicts need not impede gospel ministry. This is a good one. And this may be where we see a lesson in Paul and Barnabas. Conflicts need not impede gospel ministry despite their sharp disagreements, despite the fact that we can really picture them leaving town in a huff in virtually opposite directions. Paul and Barnabas both did continue in the work to which God had called them. 
This is an amazing blessing of God's grace and mercy. Our fallenness, our vulnerability to unnecessary conflicts need not interrupt His sovereign, saving work, even through us. Paul and Barnabas pressed on in their work despite their sharp disagreement. Might we better picture them leaving town at peace? Not with one another over this question of John Mark, but saying, we're not going to resolve this, and the gospel's at stake. Let's go. And so Barnabas and Mark sail off to Cyprus, and Paul and Silas head up through Syria and Cilicia. Could have been their resolution. So that when they came back together and the usefulness and friendship that had been there wasn't all that hard to repair because the situational moment had passed. So that's third. Fourth, bigger picture, grander theme now, lesson number four that we want to take out of this section. Our trust in God's sovereignty is too fragile. Our trust in God's sovereignty is too fragile. And along with that, I might add, our estimation of our own importance to his work is often too inflated. Let me explain that for just a couple of minutes because I think this is very important, but it's a bit of a subtle point, grand as it is. So just stay with me for a moment. God has purposed that he will work through us, correct? The Great Commission is probably the chief and clearest passage showing that God's intention is to work through fallen human beings to spread the gospel, spread the kingdom. And in light of that, then, we do need to obey God's word and seek to embody his character. We're acting in obedience as we participate in that which he has assigned to us to do. We do need to obey God's word, seek to embody his character, because we, we, we must recognize that we can disqualify ourselves from ministry through our disobedience. Several passages can make that clear. We also know that obedience is what keeps us in His love. That was Jesus' teaching in the upper room, John 15. We also know that confession of sin refreshes our fellowship with Him, meaning it must have been broken or fractured, not separated again, but not on its best footing. It is important that we maintain our relationship with the Lord and walk with Him in obedience and trust, understanding that He has purposed to do His work through us. But along with this, we also need to recognize an even bigger picture. God actually knows what would have happened if we had acted differently. If we had actually been faithful, He knows what would have been different. And when we're unfaithful, He understands what that means. Matthew 11 talks about that. Tyre, Sidon, even Solomon, or even Sodom would have repented if the works had been done in them that were done in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. It's an amazing statement. God knows what would have happened in these cities if things had transpired differently. And there's even a sense in which this suggests that he may have altered what he did if our response had been better. We read about that in Matthew 23, which tells us of Jesus longing to bless Jerusalem, what he would have done there had she repented. Amazing insights into the power and unfolding purpose of God, how important it is for us to walk in his ways, to participate in the works that he's called us to do, but an understanding of the fact that God knows 
even what philosophers call the counterfactuals, the other things that might have happened if our lives had gone on a different course. But all of this doesn't mean that we can tie God's hands or frustrate his purpose, that our disobedience somehow gets in his way so that he can't do what he intended to do. We can't frustrate the purposes of God just by disobeying him, by resisting his ways. If God has purpose to do something, no amount of interpersonal conflict like we see here in our text today, no amount of theological disagreement like we saw in the early parts of chapter 15, no public uprisings like we saw in Acts 14, no government opposition like we saw in Acts 13, these themes sounding familiar to us in our day, though, aren't they? None of those things are going to stop the unfolding plan and purpose of God or even slow it down because of all the things God knows and because of the power our God has. Nothing is going to impede God's accomplishments of his purposes in this world or in the lives of his people or in the building of his kingdom when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it, he meant it. It's a true statement. So you and I don't need to worry that we're going to somehow impede the sovereign purpose of God by falling into our needless conflicts. We just need to embrace the teaching of his word. We need to give our lives to obeying what it says then we need to commend one another to the grace of the Lord and get to work. That's the calling of the church. Just like Paul and Barnabas did in this passage. And in that response, they did set a positive example for us today. Despite their sharp disagreement, they continued on in the work to which God had called them, commended to the grace of the Lord, and productive, Luke says, twice in this brief text, Productive all along the way to the praise of God's glory and grace. There's the setting. We see both happening simultaneously. The troubling vulnerabilities of fallen human beings, redeemed and called though they are, and the sovereign purposes of God being realized even through them in the midst of it all. Amazing. By application then, this, this final thought could provide a helpful reminder to us in our day in a rather unique way, I think. And here's where we're going to extract something from this experience and apply it to us. We are living in days of much conflict. Agreed? Considered by many to be needless and petty. Agreed? We can find ourselves in places of sharp disagreement. Right? even with one another, right? No. <laughs> that was really well placed. <laughs> and we can find ourselves in places of sharp disagreement over non-essential matters. Still thinking that somehow our Christian faith calls us to make a stand here, now. Foolishness. Foolishness. 
This one says, we need to wear a mask. That one says, masks make no difference. This one says, it's a matter of civic responsibility. That one says, it's a classic case of government overreach. This one says, the science on masks is undeniable. That one says, requiring masks is not just unwarranted, it's illegal. So who's right? And who's wrong? Which one of them is proclaiming an undeniable, essential truth? Which one is standing humbly but firmly to defend what's clearly right in the face of the other who's clearly wrong? Which one? My friends, there is nothing pleasant about this pandemic season. Nothing. We can name some positives that may emerge from it, but that is the grace of God alone. But there's nothing in the virus itself or in the toll that it's taking on human life, on our quality of life, or on the economy, national and international. Nothing that's pleasant. Nothing. And this world is going to fight over it. They fight over everything. I'm not sure how it's even possible that humanity could be passionately, vitriolically divided 50-50 on every single issue that faces us. But we are. Reliably, we are. We can even be passionate about a four-by-six piece of cloth that covers our nose and our mouth during a pandemic. As though that were an essential matter worthy of our unyielding defense, even if it means separating us from one another in sharp disagreement. I have to ask you some questions. Aren't we living for a higher cause than that? Aren't we? Can you answer me aloud? Yes. yes, thank you. That's really important. I didn't doubt it, but we need to hear that answer. Aren't we living for a higher cause than that? Aren't we in this world, but not of this world? Aren't we here for an entirely different purpose, such that the ups and downs of of a season like this need not, ought not, ensnare us, not the church. Isn't this whole season a great gospel test for us? To make sure that we don't get drawn aside into non-essentials? That we see through and we see past the vicissitudes of life. life in this tragically fallen world and that we minister the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ even in the midst of it. Isn't that our calling? And if for a time we must wear masks on our faces in order to be a Jew to the Jews or a Greek to the Greeks, can't we do that with a joyful spirit?
Wouldn't it be an amazing thing to see Grace Church of DuPage doing this joyfully rather than grudgingly? Of what worth is grudging obedience according to Scripture? Well, it's better than outright disobedience. We learn that from the parable, Jesus talking about the two sons. But isn't it joyful obedience that we long for? I mean, it could be worse, right? It could be worse than having to wear a mask on our face. I don't want to be indelicate, but Timothy had to be circumcised. (laughs) Perhaps you have not been skewered by either of the horns on this particular dilemma that I'm using as an illustration. Perhaps you've not snagged the elbow of your sweater on this particular cultural issue. Praise God for that. I have a charge for you. Begin helping others past it. Begin helping others past it, beginning with your brothers and sisters in Christ who are called to live for such a higher purpose. Such a higher purpose. But also, secondly, be advised, be warned even, That there are countless other issues out there that masquerade as essentials and ensnare many a well-meaning brother or sister in Christ into embracing and defending false dichotomies, important issues though they may be, false dichotomies presented for what it looks like to be a Christian. Christians are people who've been bought by the blood of Christ and live daily for the proclamation of the gospel that has reconciled us to the true and living God and given us a hope and a future in Christ. That's who we are. That's what we do. Wherever we go on the course of a day or a week, that's our calling. That's our primary identity ahead even of the vocation because it folds in with the vocation that God has enabled in each and every one of us. Vocation doesn't just mean a paid professional job. Vocation is what God has called you to do in this world, even if it's unpaying and unnoticed. This is who we are. But there are false dichotomies out there that we can get caught on. Causes, issues, activities, beliefs in which we suggest that there is only one Christian way when in point of fact... Each one is a matter of Christian liberty that just doesn't deserve to rival our allegiance to the gospel. And each and every one of them is a gospel test to see if we really are the church in our day. The sharp disagreement here was a pretty easy one to see. We're all drawn to it, but we're still confused with what to do with it most often. Hopefully, we've clarified that today. It may have continued on, but it didn't impede the work of the gospel. And it ultimately didn't separate the two guys who went in opposite directions. Sharp disagreement's a pretty easy one to see. Treating a non-essential as an essential. But how well did you do with the second issue in today's text? Circumcision of Timothy. Do you immediately see why that's so important? And how circumcision, which isn't required for salvation, could all of a sudden be important? For the son of a Jewish mother ministering in a religiously sensitive area? 
Did you recognize that one? As a situational essential? My friends, as we consider the troubled opening of Paul and Barnabas' second missionary journeys here, and we'll call them journeys because now they took off on two second journeys. We only know of Paul's. Then the cost for Paul of joining Timothy's, or cost for Timothy of joining Paul's team, as we look at both of those, let me remind us of the vulnerability of our own flesh toward misidentifying the essentials in our day, toward losing the primacy of the gospel as our defining mission and our unrivaled allegiance in the midst of so much conflict and cultural noise around us that can so effectively, so completely dull our senses along the way. May it never happen. Church, call out to God on one another's behalf. Commend one another to the grace of God that we pass the gospel tests in our day and don't get impaled on the horns of the dilemma that they put in front of us. Agreed? Let's pray together. And as I pray, musicians, please return to the platform. And men who will help me serve communion, please join me at the front. We're going to pray now both to conclude the sermon and for communion because your pastor has been a little long-winded this morning. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, guide us now as we remember the death of Christ and more than anything in that act of remembrance and anticipation. I pray that the primacy of the gospel might be that which is most on our minds and hearts this morning. The primacy of our gospel, the primacy of our allegiance to sins forgiven through the sacrifice of Christ. And Father, as we come now to the table of the Lord, I pray that each one in this room who knows Christ as Savior would join us in this remembrance. And each one who doesn't, even as they pass, that they would begin hearing the call of your spirit toward repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.